0: Welcome captives and captive friends to episode 17 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialists RNQ and presented by me, Richard Kutcher. To hear more from me and the Global Captive Podcast, please do make sure you are following our LinkedIn page and check the website www.globalcaptivepodcast.com. I am delighted to introduce my guest co-host this week, president of the largest captive manager in the world, Ellen Charnley from Marsh Captive Solutions. Ellen, welcome to the pod.
1: Thank you, happy to be here.
0: Good, well it's great to to have you here, Ellen. We have got lots to get through today and I know you have a packed schedule while here in London. In the second half of this episode, we will hear from, uh, for the first time, a new feature of the Global Captive podcast, Friend of the pod, Karen Z, Captive Program Manager at the University of California, has been interviewing various captive experts in the United States for what we are calling Karen's Captive Corner. And our first trip with Karen will be to discuss voluntary benefits with Kirk Watkins, a captive practice leader with Tryon, A Marsh and McLennan agency. Ellen, you obviously know uh, Kirk uh, very well from your own practice, so it'll be good to get your thoughts on that in the second half of the pod. Meanwhile, our captive owner interview will be with Paul Smith, Director of Insurance at First Group America. But Ellen, I presume you've been kept very busy the past 12 months with the acquisition of JLT and the significant captive practice that came along with that. I saw you describe it in an interview, a recent interview of Captive Review, as a golden opportunity. Why is that and what has the kind of additional JLT talent and portfolio brought into, uh, into Marsh?
1: Yeah, that's correct. When we we um, welcomed approximately 80 colleagues from around the, around the globe um, to join our existing uh, 400 and some uh, Marsh Captive Solutions colleagues. Um, and we've welcomed colleagues from different parts of the world um, where we didn't currently have a presence, for example, in Mumbai. There's a, a relatively large operation in Mumbai uh, that was uh, Legacy JLT, and so some of those colleagues are, are um, part of the Captive Solutions Group. We also have colleagues in some of the, the existing domiciles that we're already present in, um, but also we're welcoming, welcoming in um, some new structures. They have their own protected cell section, um, a, s- a section of companies um, called isosceles. Um, so we're excited about that because that brings um, additional bench strength to our protected cell company um, uh, portfolio. So yes, it's extremely exciting. It's been very busy ever since we uh, we, s- we hit the go button, um, but uh, we're making significant progress progressing and ready to move on.
0: Great. Well, there are obviously some major domiciles that you touched upon there, which JLT and Marsh both had significant offices in. How has been the kind of process of bringing those together? Are you kind of joining offices in those places as and when, it, when, it, when it's necessary?
1: We have got two offices at most of those locations. So getting co-located was the, cr- the fastest thing that we needed to do. Um, I'm a big believer in people being in the same building. It's very hard to be one unit and one company and one team if you're in two different buildings. So um, in Bermuda, um, we're already in the same building. And I, be- I believe in Barbados, it's happening um, this week or next week. Guernsey, it's happening towards the end of the year also. Um, and parts of the U.S., uh, it's already happened. So, so that's exciting. We, uh, you know, we're, we're now on the same systems. Um, so we're, um, we're full steam ahead now.
0: Great. Well, it's almost two years to the day, I think, that you took on the position at Marsh Capture Solutions. Outside of the JLT acquisition, what have been some of the biggest changes or evolutions you've made to the way that the practice operates in that time?
1: Yeah, so the first thing I did um, when I took the position was look at the overall global structure and see if we had um, the right um, balance in the various different locations um, and the various different regions. Um, and it became apparent to me that we had um, somewhat of a similar size in the U.S., continental, the islands, and then the rest of the world. So I split the, the global practice into three regional practices and appointed three regional leaders, um, three very experienced and talented colleagues within within Marsh um, who re- reported reporting to me. So that's Julie Boucher, I persuaded her, twisted her arm to move to Bermuda, mm-hmm. um, Chris Varen running the U.S., and then Will Thomas-Ferrand, who I know you know as well, is running this part of the world, uh, including everything else that's not islands in the U.S. So we've become um, – tried to become more regionally focused, um, harnessing the synergies that come within those particular regions. Um, and looking for growth opportunities um, that are perhaps specific to those regions. Um, We've also had a big push on our PCC strategy. I mentioned isosceles, which is uh, an added benefit on top of uh, the mangrove strategy that we have. And I appointed Donna Weber to lead um, the pooling and and PCC uh, strategy within Captive Solutions. So we've really sort of gone after the middle market sector um, more so than we would have done in the past. The other area that we've really focused on would be in our technology building out our technology platform and got some really exciting things that we're doing on that but uh, more, more to com- come on that later on.
0: We spoke at the time of your appointment when I was at Captive Review that you were one of the few captive practice leaders who had spent parts of your career kind of managing different domicile offices as well as consulting which is obviously a big part of, of the, the larger captive practices. How has uh, that helped you in kind of understanding uh, the different but complementary roles that uh, consulting and captive management play in a practice the size of Marshes?
1: Yeah it's been it's been Critical, I think. Um, originally, I'm an accountant, like most people who have been in the captive industry for a long time ago. I, I actually trained with KPMG here in London um, many, 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 many years ago. But yes, I've run I've run part of the consulting practice. I've run um, domicile's and regions. I run the, run the global sales. So I've done I've done a bit of everything. And um, I would be a, uh, be correct in saying I'm a jack of all trades and really master of none of those, perhaps. Um, but yeah, I, think prob- I think that's probably harsh on yourself. I don't <laughs> don't. <laughs> but I think that's put me in a in a terrific spot to at least have an appreciation for the things that go on in all the different parts of the practice, and uh, allows me to um, help the regional leaders and the and the uh, consulting leaders, etc., um, drive growth, um, see where the best talent might be, how to develop that talent. Uh, and also be aware of how we utilize our technology. I think that's critical too. Um, I've, I've been in the weeds. I've used the technology and seen how it evolved, seen, seen where we need to invest more. Um, so I, I think my rounded background actually is positioned me quite well to, to run this practice.
0: So considering the, the largest companies in the world and the biggest insurance spenders in the world generally own and operate a captive, are you surprised that sometimes maybe captive practices and the captive industry more broadly don't always get the promotion or, or recognition that they, it might warrant or you might completely disagree with that hypothesis uh, completely?
1: Um, I don't disagree with it completely. In fact, it's been um, on my agenda uh, for a number of years, I think, to try and drive the importance of it, uh, even within Marsh. So I think it's changing. Um, It's certainly changing within Marsh, and I think it's changing with the industry, and I think we're going to see it change considerably over the next few years. As companies start to retain more risk, I've I've predicted this for a while, and I think it's actually happening. Um, you know, there's many organisations that have stronger balance sheets than insurance commercial insurance companies, and they they don't particularly want to to leverage. Uh, they'd rather leverage their own balance sheet than than purchase insurance. So um, the sophistication of their their vehicles, whether they're captives, whether they're their own insurance vehicle, maybe they call them something different. I think it's going to evolve, and I think I think we're at a really important turning point that is going to uh, really put the captive slash insurance, uh, mar- in, in self insurance market on the map. Um, and I think we're in, we're in for a big ride ahead of us.
0: Yeah, and we'll kind of talk a little bit about the, the kind of hardening market in the second half of the pod, which I think was obviously relevant there as well. On the captive management side, the actual business of captive management, we've seen. Uh, more consolidation and acquisition among captive practices in the past 12 months. Obviously, uh, the JLT practice was part of the wider uh, acquisition of of Marshall McLennan of JLT. Do you recognize that this business, and as a result of that, we've seen fewer independent captive managers, do you recognize that this business is possibly harder than ever to thrive in nowadays for remaining independent captive managers?
1: I think so, and I think that's logical. Um, You need Now you need... um Strong talent and technology, um, bench strength across across the globe, really to compete. If you're not present within the ma- the major sectors or the major domiciles and the locations, then you can't have an unbiased domicile neutral view and how best to advise your client. So size is important. I mean, I, this is a bit of a pain point for me when we uh, we hear that size, some some clients get influenced by others to say that oh they're too big. Uh, you'll get you'll be the small fish in the big ocean. Um, that's not the case. Um, this is a very specialized industry and our service that we give to our clients is extremely specialized. Um, we have offices all around the world and approximately 500 colleagues. So we have that that bench strength and that experience and knowledge to, ha- to advise clients and help clients all the way around the globe. I think it's logical that, that the independents, if they're smaller and don't have that global presence, um, are going to struggle. The other area where uh, I think they're going to struggle is just having the manpower um, to address all of the regulatory changes that are happening in the insurance world, particularly in this part of the world and in, uh, in Europe, but also it's actually happening in the islands as well, having uh, this, this notion of economic substance presence of people on the ground, um, sometimes a, a smaller independent organization won't have that flexibility to have that have that so they 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 may struggle to be compliant or their captives may struggle to be compliant
0: great thanks ellen well that's uh, pretty much it for the first half of this episode it's now time for our captive owner interview of the episode while in vermont for the vcia annual conference in august i caught up with paul smith director of insurance at first group america to learn more about his company and the way they utilize a single parent captive
2: First Group is a UK company. So although the majority of the business is in the US. So we do uh, a little bit of rail business and some busing business in the UK. And the, and then the US, it's mostly busing. So we own um, three main companies. The first one is First Student, which is our school bus company. And we have about 40,000 school buses throughout the US. We also have First Transit, which is a municipal busing company. So we have about you know 10,000 municipal buses and then we have Greyhound which is the part of the business that everybody knows but the smallest part of our business and um, we are currently in the process of trying to spin that off um, because although they're all busing companies um, there's not as much synergy as you would think there would be because the drivers are completely different the customer base is completely different so there's there's not a lot of synergies involved in, in having Greyhound with the other two businesses.
0: Great, and, and what's your role within within First Group?
2: So I am the Risk Finance Director. Uh, so I, I manage the captive uh, and all the uh, financial uh, parts of the captive, and I do a lot of, of you know other things within the business. I help uh, on the pricing side because we you know we do lots and lots of contracts with you know school districts and municipalities and so I help you know put together the models uh, to help price the insurance parts of those businesses uh, and I do um, help manage the insurance brokers and the uh, insurance renewal processes.
0: So you previously worked with Ernst & Young before joining First Group uh, I think you joined a couple of years ago how have you uh, found that moved uh, to the client side?
2: Uh, it's really interesting, and 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 I do like it. Uh, it's it's a much more relaxed, in in some ways, because you're not I'm not like running around trying to you know at Ernst and Young I had to try to uh, generate business and then you know do the work and then move on and generate more business. So there was so the work part I really enjoyed. The selling part was, was not really my forte, and and so. It's nice to be able to come to First Group and and really get to know the company and and you know be be able to 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 help the company grow and and, and do what it do what it does best.
0: And then how do you think then that experience from working on the consulting side um at Ernst & Young has has helped you in your in your new current role or current role as risk finance director?
2: A lot of what we did at Ernst & Young is we'd go into companies and, and look at the risk management departments and try to improve their processes, try to improve their programs. And so I've, you know, I've kind of taken that same mindset into first group. Um, I replaced somebody who had been there for 20 years, which is fairly typical at, in risk management departments. You, you find people who have been there for 20 years, and they've left, and there's no documentation, and so one of the big things I've done since I've been there is, is to work on our documentation and, and to develop processes for, for the, you know, all the things that go on with the captive, all the things that go on with the renewals, all the things that go on with the businesses. We have, you know, we're self-insured in a bunch of states, and, and that's been a real headache is, is making sure you do all the filings for all the self-insured states and trying to do that without a roadmap uh, can be pretty difficult.
0: So tell us a bit, a bit more then about the uh, the first group captive. Uh, Where is it domiciled, and and how does it support the parent company?
2: Uh, So we have a a very old captive. It's been in Vermont for, um, I believe, we're celebrating our thirtieth year, Um, and it's taken over. We had two companies merge. We had two captives. Uh, Our existing captive took over the liabilities of the of the merged company's captive. So currently we have large deductibles. So we're writing pretty standard work comp GLAL within the captive. We did have um, a a managed care piece within the captive, but that was recently taken out. So although it's just standard in terms of the lines of insurance we have in there, we have pretty large retentions. And because we have a pretty large loss profile at our company, it's pretty big in terms of uh, the, the loss content we have in the captive.
0: And then, so how do you then demonstrate and communicate that value of the the captive to the group? Because we're always hearing that um, captive owners, senior management want justification for having a insurance vehicle which might tie up lots of cash for example so is there a process in place or best practice in terms of how you do demonstrate and communicate that value of the captive
2: it's it's difficult it, it, it's definitely a difficult question because um, you find senior management don't doesn't always understand insurance so how you're managing the insurance uh, can be a bit of a mystery to them as well yeah, I always like to to, to pitch the captive as formalized self insurance, and so you're adding form and structure to the self insurance process. You know, you have the actuary who's looking at the the losses. It, it gives you a good picture into what are the liabilities that that we are taking on when we when we assume this risk. We assume a large amount of risk, and it's good to have it all in one place, you know, on the balance sheet in, in a very formalized manner, where it's being audited every year, so that there there aren't any you know questions or doubts about what your loss profile looks
0: like. And then, uh, in terms of looking ahead to the future, do you have any plans to uh, expand the captive or enter into new areas of business?
2: That's TBD. Uh, <laughs> the, the thing is, we are we are currently. Um, going through a lot of changes at our company. Um, you know, I, t- I told you we're looking to spin out a, a Greyhound. And so that's going to change the, the picture of our uh, insurance program. Um, because while we have a lot of losses in all our businesses, Greyhounds tend to be the most severe because when, you know, a school bus has an accident, it tends to have the accident at 15 to 20 miles an hour. Whereas when a Greyhound bus has an accident on the interstate, the impacts at 60 miles an hour, and yeah. that leads to you know much higher claims, more passengers hurt, much higher severity. Um, so if we can remove that piece from our loss profile, um, we should be able to reshape our program and then reshape our captive accordingly uh, to, to to match the the, the new insurance structure.
0: The Global Captive podcast is supported by RQ, the award winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. RQ can provide a wide range of solutions and has A rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers, and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement, whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to RQ. Welcome back to episode 17. We will be back with Ellen Charnley in a moment, but first I need to introduce a new feature to the podcast. Listeners will hopefully remember episodes 6 and 9 when we heard from Karen Z, Captive Program Manager at the University of California. Well, we liked her contribution so much that I decided to recruit her as our first correspondent for the Global Captive Podcast, conducting interviews for us across the pond. Karen, it's good to have you back. I believe you were at National Risk Retention Association Annual Conference NARA in Chicago last week. How was that?
3: It was great. Um, thank you, Richard, for having me. I mean, it's always good to hear, you know, the regulators' updates on the NAIC and the ever-changing regulatory environment of ROGs. I mean, it's very it's very informational, so it was a good conference.
0: Good. Well, we'll get to your first interview for the pod in a second, but why were you interested in becoming a regular fixture on the Global Captive podcast?
3: Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, you know, it's always nice hanging out with the infamous Kutch. And uh, of <laughs> course, <laughs> there's, you know, the perks of the fancy recording equipment and all that. But, you know, it's been a really interesting opportunity for me to learn a little bit more about, you know, the captive industry. Uh, get to meet and interview, ask questions for all these different captive professionals. So it's it's been really a great learning opportunity for myself.
0: Brilliant. Well, we're really excited to have you on board and I'm sure the listeners are as well. Karen's already conducted a number of interviews uh, with captive professionals. So we'll be dropping those into future episodes in due course. It is important to emphasize that Karen is conducting these interviews in a personal capacity and not as a representative of the university. And I believe you've also come up with a name for this feature, Karen. What's that? What have I got to, what have I got to bear with uh, when I'm introducing <laughs> this one?
3: So we came up with Karen karen's captive corner
0: well i like how you said we came up with this I, definitely you came up with this karen so, uh, <laughs> but uh i was going to go with a more i was going to say karen meets dot 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 but uh no karen's captive corner can work and if that's the uh if that's the condition of you participating in, then we'll have to go along with that um your first, inter- <laughs> your first interview karen is with kirk watkins a captive practice leader within tryon uh, a Marcia McClennan mclennan agency what was the focus of this interview and, and what did you find interesting
3: So the focus of the interview was voluntary benefits and, you know, it being another new exciting line for captives to explore. And Kirk's got a lot of experience in this. And so it was a good conversation for us to have.
0: Great. Well, it's a really interesting area. And Kirk started off by telling Karen about the agency Tryon and his role there.
4: Tryon is one of the largest uh, Marsh agencies. Prior to Marsh purchasing us, we were one of the largest independently owned benefits consulting firms in the country. And my role is to take uh, Tryon's experience and expertise in employee benefits and utilize uh, Marsh's experience in captives and insurance and combine them into offering the best possible solutions for employee lines of coverage in a captive.
3: So, you know, employee benefits is talked about a lot, and it's a growing area for captives, as you said. So, But it's quite a broad catch-all term. So can you explain what you mean when you talk about voluntary benefits and provide some examples?
4: Sure. So voluntary benefits are those benefits, when you're enrolling in benefits, that you have a choice of whether you want to participate in them or not, and 100% of the premium associated with those benefits is paid for by the employee and some of those types of benefits are legal insurance uh, which covers everything from divorces to buying a new home etc etc accident insurance which is flat benefit payments based on the bone or the injury you have so it covers broken bones broken legs broken feet sutures uh, anything associated with an accident critical illness insurance is guaranteed issue up to $30,000, and it covers diseases, heart attack, cardiac arrest, stroke, uh, those types of events. And then hospital indemnity insurance provides a benefit, typically a flat uh, benefit of $1,000 when you're admitted into a hospital, $200 a day for a typical hospital room, $400 a day for an ICU hospital room, and it covers things associated with being admitted into the hospital. And what's great is when you offer programs through a captive, we can build the programs and underwrite them, waiving the pre-existing conditions. So for labor and delivery, somebody's having a baby, They can go in for labor and delivery. Typically, that's a three-day hospital stay. And they could have a $1,600 or more benefit for that.
3: What profile of organization would typically qualify for considering providing a voluntary benefits program such as that to their employees that involves the captive?
4: So typically today, voluntary benefits are offered in companies as small as 10 or 20 employees. But those that make uh, perfect organizations for for placing the benefits in their captive, or if they're looking to pull the benefits, it would be a thousand or more employees. For those looking to offer the benefits uh, on a a kind of a pure basis directly uh, in their captive, it's typically 5,000 or more employees. And the reason that we look for 5,000 or more is it becomes a much more efficient system for the carrier, the company, underwriting, Uh, custom employee communications, etc.
3: So what kind of sectors or company types are you seeing more interest in the addition of voluntary benefits into their portfolio?
4: Well, the nice part about voluntary benefits is typically in Fortune 1000 accounts, 90% of the Fortune 1000 accounts are already offering voluntary benefits to their employees. Uh, Voluntary benefits Uh, provide profitable third-party business that's low risk and diversifies the entire portfolio of the captive. So looking at it from that point of view, if you're already offering the benefits and they're 100% insured through an insurance company and you have a captive, it makes perfect sense because of the low risk profile to put them into the captive and make them profitable lines of business for the captive. And the employee gets considerable amount of additional coverage at the same premium when it's reinsured through the captive
3: is the I guess do you see the interest primarily coming from the U.S. or U.S. based organizations or is it viable in Europe and other markets as well?
4: So voluntary benefits are, some, there's a presence in Europe, there's a presence in, in Asia with voluntary benefits and in Canada. However, based on whether they have a social one-payer medical system or not depends on the usefulness and the uptake of voluntary benefits. Currently, of course, in the United States, where we have a multi-payer system and most of the large employers are self-funded on their medical, it makes perfect sense because voluntary benefits can help reduce core medical and stop-loss severity.
3: So Kirk, I have one last question for you. So when you are looking at implementing voluntary benefits into a captive, what key stakeholders within the organization do you think could benefit from it?
4: Well, the nice part about offering voluntary benefits and a captive, it sort of touches almost everyone in the organization and it benefits all the key stakeholders. When you look at risk management and the captive, it provides low-risk, profitable, very predictable, third-party business. And it actually helps diversify the portfolio because this is such low risk compared to the other lines of coverage that they would have. In the captive uh, from when you look at it from an HR standpoint, it provides HR with much better benefits than they could get on a fully insured basis it gives them the ability to customize the exact voluntary benefits to match with their core benefit offering and in every case that we've been working on we 've been able to actually increase the benefit Karen by about fifty to one hundred percent and we decrease the premium up to about 40, 45%. So it gives, when is the last time HR's been able to say, we're gonna give you more coverage and you get to pay less? That hasn't happened for a decade and a half. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, that gives HR that ability to make that announcement to the employees. And then of course the employees, they now get considerably much richer benefits for exactly the same premium. And they understand them better because HR is completely involved from the ground up in designing them and working with the captive. And it really it bridges that gap that there is between risk management and human resource, and it, and it brings them together on a common effort.
0: So welcome back, where I am joined by Ellen Charnley of Marsh Captive Solutions. Ellen, what I really like about the voluntary benefits proposition that Kurt talked about is it's a great example of just another innovative way an existing captive can be deployed to support the objectives of the wider group, and in this case, the employees. Do you expect these and other third party lines to remain of interest to existing captive owners?
1: I certainly do. Um, I think third party lines in general um, is definitely a growth area for our captives. Um, we're seeing that in all sectors, uh, all industry sectors, not any one in particular. I think the captive is a perfect vehicle to capture underwriting profits uh, where somebody else is paying the premium, whether that's an employee, whether that's a contractor, whether that's a vendor. Um, so we're seeing a lot of exciting growth in third party in general. Uh, employee benefits is a has the added benefit of providing uh, enhanced benefits th- to colleagues uh, as, a, as a, a, a method to um, encourage uh, retention of staff as well.
0: So yeah, we had uh, we also had your colleague Lorraine Stack, part of the team here in Europe, uh, co-host episode eight of the podcast and we did speak in, in that episode at greater length about multinational employee benefits. The other area Marsh has seen growth in captives is in writing cyber. Uh, the 2019 Marsh Captive Report released earlier this year shows a 95% increase in the number of your captives writing uh, cyber over the past five years. How are you typically seeing kind of cyber risk structured through captive, and is is there is there a capacity in the reinsurance market to support that?
1: Yeah, we are definitely seeing more captives writing um, a piece of their cyber program in their captives. Typically, it's uh, a deductible or retention or maybe um, a a quota share or a layer somewhere in in the program. Um, So that type of sort of test the water bit has been used a little bit more uh, in captives, just for them to get an understanding of of what that means, um, how they can uh, price it, uh, how they can then discuss it and talk to the stakeholders of it in the organization. Because remember that each captive has um, typically senior directors on its board that are comprised of various stakeholders that are in the main company. So by putting cyber into the captive, it, it gives visibility of this risk to the organization, which can be a benefit. So perhaps it's not a uh, you know, uh, economical be- benefit straight away, but it's just giving that in- enhanced visibility of this ever-increasing risk that, that companies face. Um, there is reinsurance um, uh, capacity out there. Um, I think there'll perhaps become more reinsurance capacity out there as the market continues to transition generally um, towards a hard- hardening market. Um, And we we have a couple of captives that that access the reinsurance market, but I wouldn't say that that's uh, that's the dominant uh, value right now. But uh, looking forward to pulling the data for next year because we suspect that there'll be be continuing trends in in cyber.
0: Great. Well, uh, you touched there on the hardening market, and it is something that I feel like we're talking about in every episode of the podcast. But, of course, it is top of mind and very relevant to captive owners and and captive consultants. Uh, What are you hearing from existing captive owners as to how they might alter their captive strategy in a hardening market and how they look into the captive to support them during what we're hearing, particularly at Airmic, is some, some pretty tough uh, renewals right now.
1: Yeah, I would put that into two, two buckets. Uh, the existing captive owners uh, definitely um, are happy they've got a captive because it gives them a little bit more flexibility when they're having conversations with their commercial carriers um, to suggest putting parts of it in their captive um, to help them drive down their overall total cost of risk. Uh, as the market is sort of transitioning. But the other um, perhaps even more interesting area for me um, is on new prospective captive owners that don't really even know that they need a captive, but they've heard this word and they're scared about their upcoming renewal, um, and they want a captive put in place pretty quickly to help them um, at least start negotiating more effectively with the carrier. I was at InsureTech a couple of weeks ago in Las Vegas, which is where I live, so it was a nice convenient (laughs) uh, location for me to go to, Um, but the number of conversations I had with tech companies um, that wouldn't necessarily historically have formed captives, um, was, was quite significant, um, looking at, at potentially forming a captive to access reinsurance, um, to take a piece of the retention or the deductible, just to formally uh, finance that self-insured risk um, in a more regulated way, whereas before, they, before the, the market was sort of transitioning, they would never have even dreamed of that. So I think a lot of that's going to happen. I suspect we'll, we'll see more formations and, and bigger premiums being placed in captives.
0: I think on the on the, the last question on, on the hard market topic is what I think captive owners need to probably remember as well, I'd uh, like to get your opinion on this, is obviously having the captive is great and it does give you that flexibility in a in hardening market, but presumably the captive needs to be prepared and agile enough to respond quickly because it might need to be there might need to be extra capital put in there or there might be a business model change to the regulator. Is there anything captive owners can do to make sure that those those uh, systems are in place so they can react quickly?
1: Yeah, I mean I think um you know work work with their with their captive manager most captive managers have um solid um relationships with regulators uh to give the regulators a heads up um, the best type of relationship you can have with a regulator is an ongoing relationship, so um, giving updates to the regulator frequently about how your business is doing, how the captive's doing, and preparing preparing for change, um, and then running scenarios with the captive manager to determine if the capital is sufficient to, to support additional premium and additional exposure going into the captive. Um, I think that that sort of preparation is helpful. You know, most companies have a sense many months before the renewal hits as to how bad it 's going to be or, or how how easy it 'll be, and therefore running scenarios with the captive manager of uh, what if what if we did something here um, and getting a range of uh, of, uh, of numbers would be helpful. Um, Established captives probably have sufficient capital already uh, if they've been run well to absorb additional exposure. It's it's perhaps the newer ones that may need to think a little bit um, more strategic about how to to create surplus. And, of course, that doesn't mean locking cash into the captive. It could be with letters of credit. It could be with loans. So there are different strategic options to explore, particularly if if a company is not particularly cash rich.
0: Great. Well, Ellen, it's been uh, fantastic to have you on. I'm really pleased you managed to get this in the diary because I know we've been talking about it for, for some time. Thank you to all of our guests, Paul Smith of First Group America, Kurt Watkins for braving the first of Karen's Captive Corner, and of course, you, Ellen. Thank you very much. See you next time, Captives.